Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, and as you are seated, uh, please join with me in prayer. Oh, Father, we just come before you with joy and gratitude in Jesus. You've been so good to us. Lord, you are so gracious and kind to us. And we ask you as, as needy children this morning, God, would you meet us still? Right now, would you meet us through your preached word by your Holy Spirit? And would you work Jesus into our bones, into our hearts? Would you make us more like him? Would you sanctify us in him? And would you cause us to go out of this place as witnesses to your great salvation? Although we ask that you would receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to return now to a series that we began back in September. We're taking a break uh, through the Advent season and through the first couple weeks now in January. We're returning now to our verse-by-verse study of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we... Bring this back up. I'm not going to pretend that everybody remembers all that came before. So let's start with some basics. What is the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount is, in many ways, the fullest account of a particular body of Jesus' teaching in the Bible. It's this awesome sermon that Jesus gives. Many have said it's the greatest sermon given by the greatest preacher of all time. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're studying and it's widely quoted. Even today, actually, there's this, this way that the, the sermon permeates our own culture. There's all kinds of sound bites that I'm sure you've heard, and you don't realize actually date to 2,000 years ago directly from the Sermon on the Mount. What are they? Well, here's a couple examples. Judge not that you be not judged. You heard that before? Jesus said it first. Love your enemies. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Or blessed are the merciful. Or casting pearls before swine. It's not just a comic strip. If you guys are any pearls before swine, you can never mind. That's, no, one, no one knows what I'm talking about. <clears throat> but the sermon has had this incredible influence on subsequent human culture. It's really powerful. It's evocative. It's an evocative sermon. But if we hear only the sound bites from this sermon and we hear them disconnected from their context, we'll miss their central and most compelling and foundational point. Because from beginning to the end, it's not just about what, it's not just about the words Jesus says. The sermon's about Jesus. From beginning to end, this sermon is about the person of Jesus Christ. And he's challenging us in every way throughout the sermon to leave what we're hoping in and trusting in instead of him. And to come and put our faith in him. To obey him. To submit to him. To find life that is truly life in Jesus. The king, the ruler, the savior, the Lord, the teacher, the authority who brings us life. 
that is real life. And in fact, that's what Jesus has been talking about in that section we just finished before Christmas. In the section called the Beatitudes, he's been inviting, inviting those who've gathered around him to come to him, to come join up with him, to follow him in this upside down kingdom and to find life under his rule and his reign and his authority. That's what he was doing in this section called the Beatitudes. But now in our passage in Matthew five seventeen to 20, he transitions. Jesus transitions from that introductory material and he starts to talk about the main point of the sermon. The main idea he's driving at, which is the greater righteousness that is found as followers of Jesus in the kingdom of God. The greater righteousness of being a disciple of Jesus. But before he completes that transition and starts to teach on that topic, he knows he needs to address something really important. Because here's this thing. Here's the thing. All these crowds, they've been gathered around Jesus. They've been awed by his words and they've been awed by his miracles. They're impressed with his wisdom and they're impressed with his teaching. But they start to wonder, maybe like you and I wonder even uh, differently, but I think a, a similar kind of question in our culture. We wonder, how does Jesus relate then? If he's such a powerful and authoritative teacher, how does he relate then to all that came before? How does he relate with what came before? I think we wonder the same thing, but in a different way in our culture, don't we? We, we think things like, hey, I, I like this Jesus guy. Many of the things that he says are quite interesting, but how does he relate exactly to all the rest of the Bible? I'm not sure about that. I don't know that I like those 613 other laws in the Old Testament. How does Jesus come into relationship with those? And it's this question that Jesus begins to answer in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And in this passage, he teaches us and he challenges us again to place our faith in him as the one who came to fulfill so let's unpack Matthew 5, 17 to 20 now. And as we're going to do that, we're going to, we're going to have two very simple points. We're just going to look at what Jesus came to do and what that means for us. What Jesus came to do and what that means for us. So simple two-pointer, uh, not very usual for me, very rare for me, but here we are, two-point sermon because Jesus had two points. Look at Matthew 5, 17 and our first point, what Jesus came to do. And notice how in these words, he starts off by correcting the people who've gathered around him. Do not think, don't think, get out of your heads that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So as we unpack this, let's start here. What are the law and the prophets? If we're going to understand this passage, I think we need to understand what the law and the prophets are. So what are they? But when Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, he's using a common Jewish phrase to refer to the entirety of the Jewish Bible. It's one of those phrases that's more than the sum of its parts. Kind of like cloak and dagger. It doesn't just mean cloak and dagger. It means mystery and intrigue and all those other things associated with that. Law and prophets include law and prophets, but all uh, the parts of the Bible in the Old Testament, that first half of the Bible, that aren't exactly law and prophets. All the books of the Bible from Genesis to Malachi. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Malachi is the book that ends the, that first half of the Bible and actually is right next to the book of Matthew where we are today. And the law was the name of the first five books. The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these books, they included laws, certainly, but it's a bit of a misnomer for us. It's, it's not just law. If you've ever read them, you know that the law, those first five books are mostly narrative. 
They're just full of stories. Some of the most beloved stories in the church are in those first five books. But if you try to read through them, you have come to the technical law bits, the technical commandment bits. You probably got a little discouraged in your reading at that point. Maybe you put your Bible down for a while and picked up, I don't know, Matthew and read it instead. And in those law books, in that law, here's what's going on. That book, those five books, they recount the history of God's work to begin fixing what is broken in this world. What God does to begin fixing what is broken in this world. And he, he in those books we, we read, he, we see that he starts to fix what's broken in this world by starting a special kind of a relationship with somebody. This relationship is called a covenant. And he makes a covenant relationship with a man named Abraham and with his descendants, the Jewish people. And this covenant relationship meant that God committed himself in love. Committed himself in love and in grace towards Abraham and his descendants. And it meant that he required commitments from them. Covenants work both ways. There's obligations for both parties. For God and for those he covenanted with. And they were required to love him. God wanted a love relationship with his people. He wanted them to obey him. According to the stipulations set out in the covenant. And those sections again that you probably got bogged down in in those first five books. But it's not just like God loves rules for the sake of rules. He doesn't give all these laws and, co- and, and covenantal stipulations just because he's that guy that maybe you've met before, that person who just loves rules. You know those people? Right? Just like, man, I just love rules so much. I, to be clear, I'm not that person. I kind of don't like those people. I have a hard time because I'm a lawbreaker. I mean, that says a lot about my sinful nature, I think, more than anything else. Um, but, but God's not an arbitrary lawmaker. That's not what he's doing here. These laws and these commandments and this covenant is for an incredible purpose. His purpose was that these people would be joined to himself in relationship. Because he loved them, they in turn would love him. And as that relationship flourished, these people, they would obey God's law. And they would look differently in this broken world, this world wrecked by sin. They would look like a different kind of people. They'd be like the street lamps in the dark, pointing the way to where you can find life. Where you can find life. This law tells a story of how this covenant relationship began and what was required of God's people. And the prophets are different. The prophets, on the other hand, they were these prophetic books that continued the story of God's relationship with the Jewish people. And this story, as it continues on, many of you know, it's not exactly an encouraging story. More and more and again and again, we see the sin that is in the human heart that God's been working to, to deal with, but isn't fully dealt with yet. And the prophets, they're, they're full of rebuke. They're full of exhortation. As they call God's people back to faithfulness to his covenant that he established in the law, those first five books. is come back to that. You're wandering away. Come back to this. Come and learn about God. Come and commit yourself in faithfulness to him. And sin was in the hearts of those people. And the language that's often used in the Bible is the language of spiritual adultery. Spiritual unfaithfulness to God. And God, through the prophets, calls his people back to the covenant in the first five books into faithfulness. All right, that's a lot. I just told you a lot of things. You didn't think we'd be talking about the law and the prophets this morning, did you? No, here we are. It's a lot I know, but it's actually really, really important for us to understand in context what Jesus is talking about. We need to have a bit of an idea of the law and the prophets if we're going to know what Jesus is saying. In Matthew five seventeen, Jesus addresses the people gathered around him with a corrective point. <laughs> Don't think I've come to get rid of the law and the prophets. It's not why I've come. Don't think that. That's not why I've come. 
And it's a needed correction because the potential misunderstanding was that because of this authority that Jesus taught with, this great authority, actually, after this section, uh, just coming up following this little section in 5, 17, and 20, Jesus starts to teach about the greater righteousness with the words, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And when someone says something like that, the people are going to start to think, well, then maybe he doesn't care about what was said. Maybe he doesn't care about that law that came before. And Jesus says, no, that's not the case at all. And he corrects that thinking and says in 5 verse 17, I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is clear. He's saying, I'm not anti-law and prophets. I'm actually a pretty pro-Bible person. (laughs) I'm radically for the Bible. I am for the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And fulfill really is the key word here. Already Matthew has used this same word, this fulfill word or fulfillment word, six times at key moments before this. He's been setting us up for this point when Jesus would say these words. So what does it mean? What is this fulfillment talking about? Well, it's this. Jesus is teaching us that everything in the Bible story before him, everything before him was aimed at him. Everything before him is only accomplished in him and through him. Without Jesus, the story has no end. The story has no climax. The story has no more fulfillment. All of it was pointing to him. All of it was pointing to Jesus. What came before was the shadow, and Jesus is a substance. So as you read the Old Testament, and you're confronted with that story of sin, you need to realize you're confronted with a story that's not finished yet. You're confronted with a story that doesn't have the ending yet. The fulfillment hasn't happened yet. To illustrate this, think about this. In the book of Isaiah, God, he speaks this incredible poetic parable to his people. It's a summarizing parable about his relationship with his people. And in this parable, he makes it clear that he has been a God who is gracious and who is loving and who is good. He's been so good and steadfast towards his people. But he's clear his people haven't been and the same to him. They've rebelled again and again and again. Just look at Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 4, and then also verse 7, and the way that God is grieved by the hatred and violence and sin that he sees. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And then in verse 7, he brings the point home. He says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And God looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You see, God, God wanted the fruit of righteousness and justice to flow from his people. To come forth from their hearts the way that, that fruit naturally comes forth from a plant. As the nutrients come up from the very root and, and produce it naturally outward. 
He wanted it to come forth from hearts that loved God deeply. According to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. But that's not what happened. Rotten fruit came forth instead. And at the end of the Bible, at the end of the, the Old Testament, and at the end of Malachi, we need to realize this story has not been finished yet. Has not come to its fulfillment yet. Because even though the narrative of Scripture has been full of this failure and sin and disappointment and grief and mourning and weeping, it's sprinkled throughout with hints of what's to come. There's these promises in it about what God will one day do when the story is complete in the hearts of his people. Jeremiah 31 verse 33 is one of those texts where God promises something incredible. God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, he says, Something else very similar to this. Another promise is the day's coming. The story's not over. The fulfillment is coming. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And the climax of the story, Jesus stands up on a mountain. And Jesus speaks to us, speaks to his people. He says, I'm the fulfillment. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to bring this story to its end. I have come to fulfill it. He didn't get rid of them. He came to fulfill the greater righteousness that they were aimed at all along in a relationship with God that stemmed from the heart. And notice this, in saying that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, notice this, he's making a radical claim about himself, isn't he? He's saying something about who he is. He's saying, I am the fulfiller. He's saying, this story, this Bible is about me. This Bible is about me. Have you ever read a really, really good novel? A really great novel. Have you watched a really, really great movie? I know that all that makes money today are sequels and Marvel movies. I know, I know that. Right? But have you seen a really good movie? Right? Where there's this, this plot, you know, and the opening scenes are bringing you into a story that's compelling. And you're, you're trying to pay attention because you know that this writer, this writer is, is getting to something. I don't know where it's going yet. I'm along for the ride, but I know it's going to go somewhere. And then when the end comes, you think, oh, th that's it. All the points that were started here at the beginning, they all come together here. I, I see. I get it. And you start to reread that story backwards. You read it again. You watch the movie again because there's so much prefiguring in it. And you appreciate it more because you know the ending. The Bible's like that. The Bible is like that, and Jesus is the end. He's the center. He's the point of the whole story. You see, Jesus, he's not anti-Bible. He's the fulfillment of the Bible. He's not anti-Bible. And in 5 verse 18, in our text, he even says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, 
It's a tiny little Greek letter for I. It's very small in the Greek text. Not a dot. None of that will pass from the law until all is accomplished. It's not going anywhere. All of the Bible matters. The smallest dot won't be thrown out until everything is finished, until Jesus returns and he makes all things new. You know, Jesus himself, he, he says something like this to the Pharisees in the, in the book of John, the gospel of John. In chapter 5, verse 39, he talks to them. And he challenges the way that they are reading the Old Testament. They're reading the Bible and they're not seeing him. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's they that they bear witness about me. You can't find life in scripture unless you find me in scripture. Jesus is a life that the whole Bible is aimed at. And the whole Bible only makes sense with Jesus at the center. As you see all the threads of the tapestry starting at the beginning and interweaving and coming together in the climactic point of him and his death and his resurrection and his salvation for mankind. So there's an application point for here for us here, isn't there? It is January after all, and I'm sure a lot of you have begun a Bible reading plan. If that's the case, great. Praise God. Um, if you're someone here who's never read the Bible that intentionally before, man, let me invite you into that this year. The Bible is an incredible story. Uh, start reading it along with us this year. But as you do it, let me encourage you. It's all about Jesus. When you get bogged down in those hard bits and that hard stuff, and you're like, man, I don't think I want to get through this. This is just too challenging. Know that it's like, it's like growing in a relationship with someone. You need to press through the hard stuff to, to see the depth and the richness and the foreshadowing and to read and to reread to come to a greater understanding of our salvation in Christ. The whole Bible's about him. So don't miss out on the depth that's there because you want to read the easy bits. Read the whole Bible. It all points to him. Jesus has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So here's our second point. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us then? We'll look first at Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that he is the fulfiller, not the abolisher of the Bible. He's saying that he doesn't throw out the bits that he doesn't like. He doesn't throw out the bits that he's uncomfortable with. And he speaks to us, he says, and, and you shouldn't either. <laughs> if you're my follower, you can't throw out the bits that you don't like either. The bits that are uncomfortable. And to be clear, he says that there's great danger of something happening to you if you're that kind of person that loosens what the Bible teaches. He says that you're in danger of being called least in the kingdom of heaven. And to be clear... Least in the kingdom of heaven in this text doesn't mean that you get some smaller inheritance. doesn't mean that you get like a funny moniker and a nickname in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, there's the least. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus is saying least in the kingdom of heaven means not in the kingdom of heaven. Least in the kingdom of heaven means not in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, I think, makes that clear because it makes the point of what Jesus is talking about in this whole section abundantly clear. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is a severe warning for us. This is a tough word. But it's more complex than it seems, isn't it? Because, okay, 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 we get, you know, righteousness matters. Jesus isn't getting rid of the law. But how exactly do all those bits in the Old Testament come to fulfillment in the New Testament? It's not so black and white. 
There's some complexity there. After all, on the face of it, there's lots of things in the Old Testament that the church through all of history has not observed. The church through all of history has not obeyed. So what are we talking about here? I mean, clearly I don't leave the corners of my beard untrimmed, right? I'm not doing that. I sure wish I could grow a sweet beard, but I can't. You know, uh, I'm jealous of all you guys. I mean, there's, I don't know, there's like two of you in this room that have sweet beards. Um, but I don't, I don't obey that law to leave the corners untrimmed. And I mean, none of us here really seem to care much about pork, right? We eat a lot of it. And uh, I, I saw you eating your burgers this week. You know, you had a little extra bacon on those burgers and you loved it. And you praised God and thanked him for his bounty. You know, like what's going on here? This is a little bit complicated. And more pointedly, more pointedly than those examples, the frequent question today is this. This is a common question. There's a common argument made today. And it says this, why do faithful Christians eat shellfish, but embrace a historic Christian sexuality restricted to a married man and a married woman? That is the the heart of the question today. And the argument goes like this. After all, the book of Leviticus, it forbids shellfish and it forbids sex outside of a one man and one woman relationship in marriage. So why should I obey one, but not the other? What's going on here? Don't tell me that you don't, you don't get rid of the law and the prophets, Jesus, because apparently you do. What's happening? What's happening? Well, what you need to understand is that this whole line of thinking, it fails to see what Jesus is really talking about here. It fails to miss, and this is the narrative. This is a story of relationship coming to fulfillment in a new covenant in Christ Jesus. Because by fulfilling the law and the prophets, Jesus isn't saying that his followers must observe painstakingly all 613 laws that are in the Old Testament. He's not saying that. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus is saying, on the other hand, that everything in the Bible that came before him, that it's fulfilled in him. That the story comes to its completion in him. He's saying that. And that's an important difference. Through Jesus, it's not as though everything stays the same from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Much changes, actually. Much changes. If you read the book of Hebrews, you'll read a book that talks in the Bible a lot about the way that Jesus came to bring a new covenant that is greater in every way than the Old Covenant. It's greater in every way, but it's different. It's different. It establishes a relationship with God that's better than the Old One. And through Jesus, we see that actually... As he fulfills that relationship to the new covenant, lots of the laws of the old covenant weren't eternal laws for humanity. They were particular laws at a particular time for people relating to God through the structures of the old covenant. So some of those laws were to do with various sacrifices, with the whole sacrificial system. But Jesus fulfills sacrifice, doesn't he? In his one time offering of himself, his blood shed for ours, his life given for us. So those those laws don't apply to to us any longer. Some of the laws in the Old Testament, they were to do with marking God's people out as unique among the peoples around them. That's where the shellfish law came from. That's where the mixed fabric laws, if you're familiar with those, that's where they came from. There's a peculiar people that were here that were marked out in a certain way. Now through Jesus, we're marked out through the holiness and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we're different because of who lives in us and how he changes us. It's different. But biblical sexuality... Well, that's part of the law that bears witness to God's eternal and his creational purposes for mankind. He made us. He knows how we operate best. He has purposes for us. And those laws and the laws like them, they're eternal. And they matter for us today just as much as they matter for the Old Testament followers of God. 
So if you're confused by this still, if you're still not sure, okay, but I don't know which is which. How do I find some clarity here? Read the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, you're going to see the law of Christ unfold in all of its grandeur and beauty. And all that the New Testament says applies to you as those who are under the law of Christ. And so you're called to obey. And the danger is looking at Jesus and thinking, man, Jesus says that he comes to fulfill. I just want, to, I just want Jesus all on his own. I don't care what anybody else says. I just want Jesus. Guys, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of the Bible, then the whole Bible is about him. You can't separate Jesus from the Bible. Not from the New Testament commands and instructions, not from the Old Testament. It's all centering on him. You can't remove the rest of the Bible from Jesus. And the New Testament has much to say to us about God's eternal rules and instructions for us as humankind. So that's a lot. Again, I'm going through a lot of technical stuff this morning. We should ask, though, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Jesus says in 519, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So here's my question. Is there something that you're ignoring in Scripture today? Is there something that Jesus has instructed you? That the Bible has instructed you? That you're saying, yeah, yeah, I'm not really going to follow that. I'm not interested in obeying that. Jesus, I'll take, but I don't want that stuff. Friends, you don't get to do that neutrally. The warning in the scripture is that you do that as an enemy of Jesus. You do that as somebody who has chosen not to submit to the Christ of scripture, not to submit to the Lord of the Bible, the Lord of our hearts. And I'd ask that you'd repent, that you'd turn away from that, that you'd hear Jesus' words in John 14, verse 15, which say this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. think that you love Jesus if you ignore other parts of the Bible, but you don't. It's all about him. It all points to him. He, he agrees with it. He's a Bible person. And love shows itself in obedience. Love shows itself in obedience. Still, with that warning in mind, man, praise God, the good news about Jesus, it's not that he requires perfection from us. Oh man, we need to hear that right now, I think. It's not that he requires perfection from us. He's a God who's a God of grace. The greater righteousness that Jesus is establishing is not about perfection. It's not about perfect obedience. But let me get to that as we look at verse 20. Verse 20 says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus teaches his followers, don't think I'm asking less than the scribes and Pharisees. I'm not asking less than them. I'm asking more than them. I'm not asking less. I'm asking more. This would have been crazy shocking to Jesus' followers. Because these scribes and these Pharisees, they were the people that had, they had the most careful observance of those 613 laws. They had it together. They looked good. They did the commandments. They obeyed them. One children's Bible writes about them. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones calls them. She calls them the extra super holy people. Now it's described in the Pharisees, the extra super holy people. And so for his followers to be like, but Jesus, what do you mean? I, I can't live up to that. 
How am I supposed to be greater in righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees? That's not possible, Jesus. Well, here's the key point. This greater righteousness Jesus is talking about, it's not that white-knuckle, painstaking, careful determination not to screw up. That's not what it is. It's not a white-knuckle, painstaking, careful determination not to screw up. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. The greater righteousness Jesus has come to fulfill is not so much concerned with what's external. It's concerned with what's internal. He's looking in our hearts. Let me illustrate this. I distinctly remember, remember in my life gazillions of times where my parents would ask me to do something. And it's not just like memories of a, as a child. Like these are embarrassingly lots of memories from my teens. You know, and they'd ask me to do things and I'd be like, you know, I'll do it, but I'm going to slam the door and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scowl and you are going to see how, I am, how unhappy I am that you called me to do this. A little later on in my life, more, more sin and tell here this morning. A little later on in my life, in my 20s, I was working for my dad in construction. And, uh, and he was the boss and he was the expert. He, knew, he knows better than I do. And occasionally he'd come and he'd tell me to do something differently than the way I was doing it. He'd correct me. And then like, we'd have it out on the job site sometimes. Like my dad should have fired me so many times. And he, and he didn't. He, he was so gracious and kind to me. He should have fired me. But even when I obeyed, even when I was like, okay, you're the boss, you're the expert. I get it. You got 30 years of experience and I've got like six months. I'll do it. I'll do it. Even when that happened, man, I don't want to do what he said. I don't want to do what he said. I wanted to do what I wanted. You see, the greater righteousness Jesus is speaking of, it's concerned with aligning the desires and the motivations of the heart internally with all of our actions externally. Jesus wants wholeness from us. He wants completeness. And he came to fulfill greater righteousness by making us whole people who desire and who act in concert, in love and obedience for God. That's what Jesus came to fulfill. The thing is, Jesus doesn't want the external righteousness of scribes and Pharisees. He doesn't want that from us. So get that out of your head. He knows our hearts. He knows their hearts. And he says to them in Matthew 5, 15, verse 8, he says, these people, these people, they honor me with their lips. And I think we can supply actions with both. But their hearts, their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. To return to the illustration of trees and fruit and vines, it's one of the Bible's favorite illustrations for this, actually. Jesus isn't encouraging us in our laborious efforts of stapling on fruit to dead branches and dead trees. He doesn't want you to fake it. Is that what he's asking for? He isn't saying, buck up, work harder, fake it a little better. Fake it till you make it. That's not, a, that's not an adage of Jesus. No, Jesus came to fulfill a greater righteousness whereby the whole tree is replaced with something good. He can do a miracle in the human heart through his grace and his resurrection power. He's talking about Proverbs 4 verse 18 coming to life in us and flowing through us as we abide richly in Jesus. And these words are beautiful. This is the promise that's for you if your faith is in Christ this morning and you're trusting in him for his righteousness. Proverbs 4 18 says this, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. Starts, starts low. Starts dim. But it grows which shines brighter and brighter until full day. And the full day is coming. 
When Jesus comes again and he takes us to himself and our sin is gone forever and we honor him and we love him and we're holy before him and we're pure as he is pure. He's come to start that and he's working us towards its end. So as we wrap this up, how do we respond to all this? What do we do with a text like this one? I mean, how am I with all of my mess? How are you in all of your sin? And I know you know very well. How are we with all of our brokenness? How are we supposed to have a righteousness on the inside? I mean, that's not less, that's more. I mean, isn't the inside the thing that we, so, we work so hard and so carefully to keep anybody else from knowing about? How are we supposed to be that kind of righteous? How do we respond to this? Oh man, here's the good news for us. What Jesus wants from us, he came to fulfill in us. The good news about Jesus is that he aims the full onslaught of his power and salvation, his resurrection power. Jesus came and he died. He died as a punishment for our sin. He was raised to new life and he brings us with him into his new life and the full power of his resurrection by which he will make everything new in creation. That power is at work in us by his Holy Spirit. He's the victor of Satan and death and sin. And he aims that power at our hearts when we come to him in faith. He starts working on us, changing us, and dealing with what's on the inside. Jesus does not require heart change and then not give it. Oh man, praise him. Receive that this morning. He does not require heart change and then not give it. So what do we do? Oh man, we need to know that Jesus isn't asking us to be perfect. We need to stop trusting in ourselves. I think some of us do that. I do that. I default there all the time. What can I do more to earn the favor of God and be righteous before him? God doesn't want that from us. The righteous person Jesus is talking about, they turn away from their sin, they repent, and they turn toward Jesus in faith. They say, Jesus, would you take me in? Jesus, would you do something in my heart that I can't do? And if you have to do that a thousand times a day, that's the Christian life. It's turning from sin moment by moment and trusting in Jesus again for all that he alone can do. And the incredible thing is that through that process, God starts to work on us. He works on us to see the beauty and the glory of his son. We love him more than we ever did before as we see his grace and his forgiveness. How could you, a holy God, forgive me for that? But you do, and you love me, and you draw me in, and your love is changing me. Your spirit is at work in me. He works on us. He changes us. This morning, I think we have an opportunity Matthew 4, 17, right before the sermon begins, it's gearing us up for the sermon, and Jesus says this. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And our opportunity this morning, I think, is just this. Repent from what you're trusting in. Repent from what you're hoping in. Repent from the sin that you're holding on to. Turn from that and turn to Jesus. He says, I'm enough. I'm at the center. I'm the Savior, and I'm the King and I can do something in you that you would never dream. My power is great. He's calling you into the life that he made you for. 
Will you respond to him this morning? Would you pray with